So I still have the letter. I drafted a letter to Saul Kersner. I wanted to introduce myself. I just heard you're doing this, you know, you're doing this uh, facility and you're putting this on. And I've just graduated. I'm, you know, 35 years old. Uh, I'd love to come back and I'm, I'm the guy to run this operation. Welcome back to season two of the Business Culture Podcast, a platform to learn through the power of context and story. It's great to be back with you. This season is all about impact. I'll be chatting to impact makers across industries and geographies to understand how they have made true impact on their customers, colleagues, and communities. In this episode, I got to chat with Mike Liamhais, a former teacher at King Edward's School in Johannesburg. Mike has gone on to occupy the CEO position at two of the United States' most prestigious clubs, Congressional and Ocean Reef. Mike also spent part of his career heading up the Ellis Park Rugby Stadium, as well as Sun City, and working within the PGA Tour. Let's hear his story. Mike, thanks very much for joining us on the show. It's uh, it's great to have you on. It's been a couple of years since we met in Pool Valley in the Western Cape at a Kamasa conference, and um, I thought you'd be an absolutely perfect guest for us to have on the show. If you wouldn't mind just giving our listeners a little bit of a, a context as to your journey from the early days in South Africa to where you find yourself now in the States. Well, Rob, thanks. And again, thank you for the invitation. And uh, I remember... The time at Pearl Valley, well, and it was a great Kamasa conference. And I, again, I, get, I think the highlights of those is getting to meet the different people. And I, I enjoyed meeting you and I've enjoyed staying in touch. So I appreciate you reaching out. So, you know, it's, a, it's interesting, you know, in preparation for this, having to kind of reflect back uh, and having seen, uh, you know, some of the potential questions, reflecting back on, uh, on what you've done, you know, at my age now, 66, you kind of look back and you, think about all the things you did and where you started and where you ended up. And you think to yourself, how is that possible? You know, what you thought you were, what you wanted to do for the rest of your life when you came out of college uh, is really just a stepping stone to get mm-hmm. you to the next step, to get to the next step, to kind of end up. And um, so, yeah, I, I mean, I, uh, I started my, you know, I, I sort of think of myself as a Pretoria guy. You know, from Pretoria, born in Pretoria, you know, went to Sunnyside Primary School, which was a feeder school to Pretoria Boys High. And I was just so lucky to live in that area because, as you know, Pretoria Boys High is one of the great schools uh, in in the country and certainly one that provides a holistic uh, education, always has, always will be, will never be the best at every single sport, will never be the best academically, but it really prides itself on kind of providing a holistic education where, uh, you know, there's 1,500-odd boys there now. There was probably 1,000 when I was there. But they just do an unbelievable job of uh, of giving you an all-round education. And at the time, you really can't see the benefit of that. Um, but again, when I look back now, I've stayed very close to, to the school, to the headmasters that have come. I've... Uh, I've tried to be as philanthropic as possible with them in in helping provide other kids uh, who are less fortunate to be able to attend that school and go through that. And that's a that's a whole different topic. But so Pretoria Boys High always wanted to have a position, a job, a career in sport. Um, and the only thing that was available at the time to me was to uh, to become a, a phys ed teacher. You know, there was something going on at Rhodes, but back in 1973, when I was going to college, there really wasn't a lot available in, in South Africa. So I ended up doing the um, HED course that was offered through Wits University, uh, with a lot of the classes being offered at the Johannesburg College of Education. Uh, and after four years, came out as a physical education and history teacher, and then went to go and teach at King Edward School, which... Uh, you know, is another great school, and, and I was very fortunate to have an opportunity to work there and, uh, and to spend three years uh, at the school. Um, you know, my third year, I kind of got itchy feet and wanted to do something a little different and wanted to travel, and that was my first kind of um, international trip, really, to the United States. 
and took a one-way ticket in 1979. Um, didn't really know whether I was coming back or not or whether I was just going to end up staying there. And the idea was that I was going to go to UCLA and do a master's degree. And, and, for, and at the time, the exchange rate was pretty decent. It was uh, two to one to, uh, you know, uh, $2 to the rand. Um, so things were good. But again, as an out-of-state student, what people probably don't appreciate in South Africa, if you don't live in the state that you go to the school, if you do, you get huge advantages. You pay in-state tuition. If you're not, you pay out-of-state tuition, which is sometimes 10 to 15 to 20 times what a, what a kid from California would pay. So I ended up having to pay out-of-state tuition. Didn't last very long, but made a lot of good friends. Ended up playing some rugby at UCLA, played some club rugby, and then moved back to the United to South Africa in uh, in late 80 and joined Holiday Inn. So they were looking for a sports coordinator, and I ended up working for a great team at, at Holiday Inns. And long before your time, but we used to do all of the, um, you know, all of the the cricketers, the rugby players, the Curry Cup, you know, all of the major sports events. It really was between us and Southern Sun as to who would accommodate these groups. So my job and the team that I had's job was to go out there and, and you know, interact with all these people and, uh, and get that business. And so did that for about four years, really enjoyed it. Great bunch of people, still stay in touch with those guys, guys and gals today. And then joined Robert Denton at, at Ellis Park. And that was a very interesting ride. It was right at the time where Robert was asked to take over Ellis Park. If you recall, Yanni LaRue it had gone into bankruptcy, the Transvaal Rugby Union. They lost the stadium, went to Foxcast. Robert was appointed as the CEO. I was appointed as a chief operating officer. And we basically managed that stadium for about three years. And that was concert in the park, two of those largest concerts ever held in South Africa, 100 and something odd thousand people. You know, it was um, stadium golf, which we created. There were boxing matches. Uh, we brought Kaiser Chiefs as their home, you know, as the as became the home, the home ground for Kaiser Chiefs. So Kaiser Chiefs on Saturday, I mean, Transvaal Rugby on Saturday, Kaiser Chiefs on Sunday. Um, really enjoyed that. It was a great, great experience. Learned a lot from Robert and really a wonderful stadium and uh, lots of great experiences in that stadium, as you can imagine. Um, left there and then um, I joined Mark Player and a guy called Steve Crystal, and we started a company called Knight International, which really was there to take care of IMG clients, predominantly Gary Player, you know, Mark's dad, uh, to basically take care of that, as well as other IMG clients. I believe Clive Rice might have been a client. Uh, I can't honestly remember. But we also did a lot of events. So we, we created events, managed events, and we, we built that business up uh, quite successfully. Um, I got out of that business in 1987. My son was born. My first son was born. And my working American, we decided to uh, move back to the United States. And as we talk further, you know, one of the the biggest challenges I think people don't understand is immigration, how tough it is to immigrate. You know, and I was lucky I had a wife, so I kind of got a green card and I got citizenship. But put that aside, just the ability to network the people that you, you take for granted, the network that you had in South Africa. I always used to say when I was working there, I was probably one phone call away from the prime minister, you know, or the president. I mean, I didn't know that person directly, but I knew somebody who knew somebody who would get that done. You know, when you immigrate and you come to a new country, you don't have that network. You kind of really on your own. So you, you really, it's a difficult time. And I remember, I recall my first five years here, I worked with the PG of America. We did some uh, some of the professionals that played out there, we actually did the arrangements. John J. Daly, Fred Wadsworth, Bob Tway, uh, Hugh Royer. I mean, a lot of the guys that ended up playing on tour played in South Africa. And Dennis Brains was in charge of the PGA at the time, and we had a great relationship. But it was tough work. I mean, it's just mm -hmm. tough being an independent guy, you know, as, a, as an immigrant. So anyway, went through that, and then I got a call from my mom. We would talk on the phone every now and again. And I'd call, I got a call from her while I was in, in the U.S. And I just finished my master's degree at East Carolina University. I'd not able to do that at, uh, at, at UCLA. I had a couple of credits, but then went back uh, when I got back to the U.S. and did it at East Carolina University and 
crammed a year and a half, two years into a year doing all four semesters. And again, a challenge for somebody that's 34, 35. But again, it was a way of getting, you know, people didn't understand the University of the Witwatersrand, never mind me being able to pronounce it. They just didn't understand it. They didn't understand our system. Um, I remember going in to apply for the, to go to college at, at East Carolina. And the woman said to me, you know, Mr. Liemes, your grades are so bad, we can't let you in. It's like, wow, my grades are so bad. I mean, I'm not a rocket scientist and I you know, never was very good at school. And, you know, academics wasn't my, you know, highlight of my life. But, you know, seriously, how bad could they be? And anyway, she said, well, look, you, we're going to have to keep you. You're going to have to maintain an A average. And if you do, we'll, you, you're able to stay in the course. If you drop below A, you're unfortunately not going to be able to go on. Anyway, I accepted that. And long story short, I found out afterwards, you know, they grade differently in the United States. Everything's graded on a curve. So, you know, very few people ever get a D or a C. Everybody's getting A's or B's. So, you know, at the end of my session with, you know, with all A's, I went back to her and I said to her, you know, I just want to explain, you know, how, why this was. And as somebody who's an admissions officer, you should probably know a little bit better. But anyway, went back to school. Um, and, and at that stage, uh, my mom had given me a call and she said, have you heard what Sol Curzon was doing out at Sun City? And that was the new palace, the new Lost City golf course. Uh, Gary Player was doing Valley of the Waves, etc." And I said, no, I hadn't heard about that. So I still have the letter. I drafted a letter to Sol Curzon and kind of preemptuous of me and I guess a little bit arrogant. But I sent him this letter and I said, you know, I wanted to introduce myself. I just heard you doing this, you know, you're doing this uh, facility and you're putting this on. And I've just graduated. I'm, you know, 35 years old. Uh, I'd love to come back and I'm, I'm the guy to run this operation for you. Now, <laughs> in hindsight, I really didn't have the skill set to do any of that. But one thing led to another. And within about three months, I got a call from uh, Peter Venison, who was Sol's right-hand man. Peter and I got together. I was in South Africa for the PGA Tour. Uh, the South African PGA Tour, uh, got flown out with Peter to Sun City and on the flight back, uh, he offered me the job and I ended up spending six years at Sun City, you know, running the golf courses, running the sport and entertainment, running the Million Dollar Golf Challenge with Tobin Pryor and just, uh, you know, another great chapter in my life and blessed to have had that experience that not only the golf experience, but the club experience of being able to uh, manage those facilities and, and learn so much. And really that was the stepping stone from there to work for the PGA Tour. And uh, having made a lot of contacts, become friendly with a lot of the players. Um, again, one thing leads to another. I ended up working for the PGA Tour and uh, for their TPC organization, which is their network of clubs around the United States. And I think at the time they probably had 24, 25. And the idea there was I was supposed to go to Vegas handle two properties for them and be a West Coast regional guy. And at the last minute, I got detoured uh, to the TPC at Avenel, now called the TPC at Potomac in Washington, D.C. The lead guy there had left. It was their second most uh, uh, profitable club. And they asked me if I would go there. And, you know, what can you say? You can't say no. You, you go with a flow. You're a team guy. So I ended up there. I was there for two years. And that was instrumental in me getting the job at Congressional, um, I had applied for the job at Congressional three years previously, had got an interview but didn't get the job. And then because the two are so close, they literally across the road from each other, there were a lot of Congressional members at TPC Avenel. And the gentleman who sat in an office down from me was a past president of Congressional, but he was also the chairman of the PGA Tour event that was hosted at Avenel. And long story short, he was instrumental in getting me an interview. I ended up getting the job. And I think, as you know, I spent 16 years there. And we did multiple PGA Tour events, the US Open, uh, just, just a wonderful place. My kids grew up there. They went to school there. I mean, really, for me, even though I live in Florida now, DC kind of was home for me in a great international city. And then um, I thought I'd retire there. I was 60 and a half. Um, happy, retire at 62, go on to, you know, be kind of become a consultant, do what I'm doing now. And I got a call from a, from a headhunter search firm. Um, and I got it from three different people. And I turned it down three different times about going to Ocean Reef. And uh, eventually, I said to my wife, you know, something's kind of guiding us along this road. 
and I really should have a discussion with them. And again, long story short, go through the process, end up getting offered the job. I end up taking the job and I was there for four years, had four great years at Ocean Reef, you know, probably, probably the largest club in the United States, um, you know, $115 million in revenue. We had over 1,100 employees, uh, you know, three different golf courses, a marina, an airport, cultural center, hospital, you know, hotel, I mean, retail. We just, we really had it all. But I think at the end of four years, I realized, you know, I was turning 65. There was a lot that I still wanted to do that I hadn't had a chance to do. We'd just gone through Hurricane Irma, which was devastating. Um, sort of like this, but on a much smaller scale. You know, you, you the nice thing, or the good thing, if there is a good thing about a hurricane, is you kind of know when it's coming, you know when it's leaving, and you mm -hmm. also sort of know what you have to do to get things back to where we need to be. And unfortunately, with COVID, none of those are. There's no certainty for any of us. So, um, you know, I made that decision. Um, I was dealing with some stuff in South Africa at the time. You know, I had a, a mother that was ill. I had a brother that had passed away. So that played heavily on my mind and on my decision. And anyway, I made the decision and, and then really never looked back. I started this little business, VMAs Consulting. And, and literally, as you know, people say that when you start a business, it takes twice as long and costs three times as much as you imagine. And I just, I was really fortunate from day one, I had, you know, three or four clients and, uh, and was sort of actively engaged. And, and even today, yesterday, I think I had six Zoom meetings. And I think after this meeting, I've got four. So, mm. you know, it's been, it's been nice to, to be in the consulting sphere and to, to kind of have the, uh, the business that I've had. So I've been blessed. So that's a little bit, uh, probably more than we need to know, but Again, that's kind of just walking you through, you know, kind of where I've been and what I've done. Yeah, thanks, Mike. That uh, that journey is one really worth listening to a couple of times over. Um, I was really interested in also for our listeners to understand that, you know, it's not just plain sailing to get where you have gotten to in your career. So if you wouldn't mind just giving us some insights into some of the more challenging moments of your your path and, and where you find yourself today, are there any specific ones that stand out for you? Rob, that's, uh, you know, again, I think uh, you have to have adversity in your life to grow. And I, I talk about this all the time. You know, there isn't a straight line on a graph that says you started here and you finished here. There's a lot of sideways, backwards movements that one has to do. And probably the biggest backward or sideways or challenging adversity for me was really my first couple of years in the United States, as I mentioned to you as an immigrant. I mean, those were some dark times for me. I mean, I remember... Um, one, I couldn't, I couldn't get anybody to answer a phone call. I couldn't get anybody to call back. I couldn't, I interviewed for so many jobs. I couldn't get a job. I mean, it was, people just didn't understand, you know, they didn't understand a guy from South Africa who speaks a little differently. They can't really put your education into any bucket. It just, it's difficult for them to, for them to do, you know? So I had to really, there were times where working with my wife's dad, I mean, I was pouring concrete driveways, you know, I was mowing lawns, I was raking leaves, um, you know, I went back to, to school, as I told you, to do that master's degree, and I did that on a credit card. I spent $35,000 on three credit cards, and for a while, my mother-in-law and I never spoke because she thought it was irresponsible for me to be going back to school full-time, incurring that kind of debt when I had a a family, you know, two young kids and a house and a mortgage and all my income was coming in in one piece at the end of the year with this PGA Tour stuff I was doing. And we we finally buried the hatchet on that. But those were dark times. I mean, that had to be paid back. But it was interesting that in making that decision and making that sacrifice, and I talk about this all the time, it's about action and sacrifice. It's about doing stuff and about understanding that to do those things, you have to sacrifice. And it's, you know, like running a marathon. You don't wake up the, today and say, I'm going to run a marathon and off you go. You wake up today and you go and walk a, a mile. Then you go and walk a mile and a half. It has to be a process, right? So for me, getting that degree, it was less about the learning. It really truly was about getting the piece of paper. I mean, I, there's nothing that I learned in the year and, you know, year I was there 
that I learned that I could honestly say I've ever used in, in my career. Um, it was about getting the piece of paper and about being able to tell the American market that I have a master's degree in an accredited university that they all knew and understood. But the five years in and around that from leaving South Africa and then going back to South Africa to work at Sun City, those were what I call my dark years. There were many times I was laying on the couch, you know, watching game shows and, you know, my wife was at work, you know, the kids were at daycare and I was kind of wondering what the hell am I going to do? You know, what? And that's when I got into, you know, I got more seriously into golf and, and, you know, one of my first jobs during that period of time was, uh, was gripping golf clubs. You know, I got a dollar for gripping golf clubs. I was getting paid two fifty-five, two dollar fifty-five cents an hour, I think, back then. Uh, and I was doing menial tasks, picking up the range, you know, putting on grips, you know, working in the golf shop, just doing anything to kind of to kind of get by. So sure. that's probably, I would say, career-wise, the biggest adversary, having come from, you know, being the CEO of Ellis Park Stadium and pretty much having you know, driving a Mercedes-Benz and, you know, being able to, you know, do what one can do when you have a position like that, to literally being on your own in a foreign country where nobody is really prepared to really talk to you or give you the time of day. So challenging mm. times. As you said at the start of the answer, Mike, it certainly, well, there certainly is no straight line on that graph and um, some great examples that you, you shared there of that. I'd like to just turn our attention uh, to towards the, the aspect of purpose and, and put that into your context specifically. How would you define your purpose in the industry that, that you find yourself in today? So, Rob, you know, it's a great question. And, and as I was thinking through this, you know, for me, it's always been about, you know, in a service industry, which, you know, I spend time at Holiday Inns, I spend time at Sun City, I spend time in private clubs. It's always about, it's always about others. It's always about in a service-led industry, it's all, all about providing a level of service to others. And when you think about it, it's not just providing service, it's really about helping others. So whether it's uh, you're at a front desk of a hotel or whether you're at a club, whether you're working behind a, a bar, whatever it is, the service to me is more helping others. How can I help you do what you need to do? You need a beer? Let me help you with that. <coughs> Excuse me. You need a room? Let me help you with that. You need a lesson? Let me help you with that. So I think when you boil this thing down in the service industry and certainly in, in, in the context of how think about things is how can I help others? How can I teach, which is at its core what I am a school teacher, you know, by heart, something that I love doing. And even though I haven't spent my career in high schools teaching high schools, I've spent my entire career teaching because it truly is about helping advance, advance others because to become a really good leader, you have to lead by example. And leading by example, I think you have to, you have to bring others with you. You don't want to... Uh, you want to be able to delegate, but you want to be able to delegate to people that can do what you need them to do. And to do that, they have to be trained, they have to be taught, they have to be mentored, they have to be counseled. So you take the role of mentor, teacher, coach, counselor, and it doesn't really matter what you're doing, whether it's with your kids, whether it's with people that you at work with. Uh, it, it's how do you help them? Because in helping them, you honestly are helping yourself and you're helping at the end of the day your members or your guests or the people you are serving. So, you know, from a purpose-led work, workplace, I mean, that's kind of how philo philosophically I've, I've always thought about it. Um, now, it sounds a little saintish in that, that it, it probably sounds, you know, to some people maybe too good to be true. But if you really think it through, and, and I have, I, I, it's, this is a, one of the questions that I really struggled with. If you really think through this, at its essence, in a service-driven organization, that's what it's about. It's about helping people. Now, are we perfect? Uh, is that on the top of everybody's my mind every single day? The answer is no. But if you philosophically have that as your guiding star, then I think you can kind of you know, at least di direct yourself where you need to be. And again, it's happening even though you don't know it's happening. I can't tell you how many times I've had interactions or exit interviews with people that have left working with me and, and have told me things that I did 
that they so enjoyed or they're so appreciative of. And honestly, I oftentimes I can't remember ever doing that, right? So I think it's kind of either in you or not in you. And I think that's really the service people that I know it's in them. I mean, mm. it's just a, it's a way of life, I think. I must say what I'm continually amazed by when I listen to people like yourself, uh, when I ask the question of purpose is how clear the answer is and how, how simplistic it is yet so important and so powerful. Mike, those who know you better than most will uh, attest to the fact that you're not scared of a, an endurance event, be it Ironman or Comrades Marathon or, or whatever else. Talk to us about the reason why you've got into that and, and what it is, what impact it's had on your, on your working career. So, Rob, I, um, when I do my classes and I teach these classes in leadership and success, I, I rely on this a lot. And, and, and when I talk about arrows in your quiver, and I think you've heard me talk about that, and, and people now have become used to that, and I hear a lot of people using that terminology now, but it is definitely one of the key arrows in my quiver. And I think the reason for that is, you know, I'm not a talented athlete. I, I, uh, I'm a plotter. You know, I'm a, you know, both of my comrades were nine and a half, 10 hours, 10 and a half hours. You know, my Ironman triathlons in Hawaii, you know, were, were not great, 14 hours, 13 hours. I'm a plotter, but in, in that, I think there's, there's the sense of work ethic, right? So as you said, you don't have to be the most intelligent. You don't have to be the brightest. I saw a study the, the other day, done American study that was done, I think it was done by Harvard, that basically said the best leaders are B or B plus students, not your A or A plus students, your B or B plus students. And, um, and, and the point that I always try and uh, you know, go back to, and that's work ethic. You know, to run a marathon, we talked about this earlier, to run a marathon takes action and it takes sacrifice. And people are probably so tired of hearing me say this, but the action part is you have to get up. This morning, because I knew I was uh, coming on with you at 9.30, so this morning I normally, I normally walk, run five and a half miles in the morning, every morning that I'm at home and I've been at home a lot and we're still allowed to do that. So. So this morning, I had to get up a little earlier. I'm up early in any case, but I had, to, I had to change my routine to get up early to do that. But the point is, you know, you don't go running. If you're a runner, you work during the day, you've got family, you've got friends, you've got things that you do. So you've got to get up early. You've got to lace those shoes up. You've got to get up. It's cold outside. You know, Johannesburg in wintertime, it's no fun running at 5.30, right? Uh, but you have to do that. If you're gonna if you're gonna run marathons, you're gonna run a comrade. You've got to do. You have to do that. So it takes action, and not just one day. You got to do it every day, or every other day, or whatever your schedule is. You have to commit to that routine, and that to me speaks to whether it's triathlons, running marathons, or athletes. I look at my son. One's a football player. The other one's a baseball player. These guys grind. You know, my, my son Matt played football, so ten games in a season. But he spent the entire year working for those 10 games. Every single day, every day at college, they were in the gym. They were eating right. They were working together. There was study hall. There were you know, tape sessions. There were video sessions, you know, looking at how they play. I mean, it's a full-time job. So when I look at I look as an athlete and I say to myself, if anybody's prepared to put in that kind of time, that kind of dedication, that kind of work ethic, that's the kind of person I want on my team. Because... Those are the kinds of people that you want to go to battle with, right? So my lesson has been, so that's the action part. The other part, as I said, was the sacrifice. And that is, you know, when your buddies are going out for drinks or going on a party on a Saturday night, and you know you've got to run on Sunday morning and you've got to put in 26 miles because you're practicing for comrades, you may go, you may have a beer or two, but you've got to go to bed and everybody gives you a hard time. But you do that. That's just, you know, an analogy that I could share with you that you would appreciate. But there's so many of those. You know, football players, baseball players, you know, cricketers, they, they don't go out the professional game today. They don't go out the night before. They don't have to be told there's a curfew. They all know what needs to be done. And those, you know, those are the sacrifices. So I think the work ethic part of that is the one that when I put that arrow in my quiver is the one that. For me, when I pull it out, it's to tell people that, hey, I want you to understand, 
I might might not be the most talented, not the, not the smartest, not the best athlete, but hey, I can outwork most of those other people that we just talked about because I'm prepared to put in the time and make the sacrifice. Yeah, and just to reiterate the fact that it's so much less today about talent and so much more about uh, just instilling that habitual behavior that enables us to just execute better and better incrementally. So yeah, thanks for sharing that, Mike. I think it's a very, very important lesson for, for our listeners to to take heed of. I wanted to ask you a quite specific question with regards to uh, Comrades Marathon versus Ironman, as you've had the, the pleasure, I suppose, of, of doing both. Which in your mind or in your body, I suppose, is, is the more challenging of the two on, on the day itself? No, I think there's, for me, there's no, there's no doubt the Ironman is more difficult. Um, okay. and, and I think the reason for that is, uh, and again, I've only, so I've done, of the, of the, the known Ironman, so they would, I did two in Durban, which were done under this terminology or the sponsorship of Carly back in the day. And I think the bicycle ride was short, but it was a difficult sea swim. You know, it started in Addington and finished at Country Club. It was a difficult swim through waves. And so you're dealing with that. Then the bicycle ride was up towards Stanga and back. And then the run was in and around the stadium there. But the one in Hawaii is brutal. I mean, I was actually having this debate with a couple of my mates in South Africa the other day. What, what was more, you know, what is more difficult? And, you know, when you do the Ironman in Hawaii, it's in September, which is still in summertime. It's in the tropics. You know, you, it's an easy swim, uh, meaning it's not, it's not like Durban where you're going through waves. It's choppy, but it's not a difficult. But the bicycle ride is a climb through lava fields with black lava, unbelievable temperatures. And it's a climb against the wind up. And then because the wind changes for the tail enders, it's against the wind coming back again. And you're climbing up, you know, about a mile, three quarters of a mile to a mile above sea level. And then you go out and run in the lava fields. And, you know, the Ironman took me 14 hours my first time. You know, my comrades took, my first comrades, I think, took 10 hours. So, you know, just on any endurance event, just tacking on an extra four hours, forget about anything else. It's, uh, and the, and the comrades is more social. You know, we, we, in the U.S., ultra distance doesn't have the following that it has in South Africa, and that's because of comrades. And what a great race that is! You know, hundred plus years old, the camaraderie, the 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 amount of people that have done ultra distance in South Africa, whether it's that or two oceans, it's unbelievable. You just don't see that in the U.S. Yeah, the big thing is obviously running a marathon, and even then, so few people actually do it. But that comrades marathon, that camaraderie, that esprit de corps, that you know, that tightness uh, that you you finish a race like that with with friends. I mean, you you linked forever with that. I mean, you know, it's uh, it's it's a great race. So whereas with the Ironman, I did it all on my own. You know, I didn't run with anybody. I didn't know anybody. You can't draft on the bicycle when you're swimming. It's head down. You, you know, your goggles are getting kicked off. You don't know who's doing what. And then when you're running, you you don't know anybody in the race. So everybody's running at different paces so it's a very lonely long 14 hours <laughs> yeah it's yeah. it's an incredible 14 hours and an incredible ch- achievement nonetheless uh, mike yeah just amazing stuff i wanted to just shift gears a little bit towards the the concepts and the discussion around uh, culture you've uh, you've had the pleasure of working in a number of different environments led a number of different environments and i just wanted to pick your brain on you know, defining what you perceive to be, you know, the optimum type of culture in which uh, people are performing at their potential and from a leadership point of view, what that kind of culture really looks like. Um, so, you know, when you look back and you look at different cultures and, and you look at different, um, you know, way people lead because leaders actually define cultures in organizations. So, you know, I remember working for, and I'm not going to mention who, but I remember working for somebody who was a fear leader, right? So he instilled fear in you, and and it was it was it was all about the fear that he could put into you that uh, that brought you to work early and made you stay late. Uh, you know, sometimes it was a fear of missing out, but most of the time it was just yeah, you know, it was fear. You do this because that's the way it's done, and that's how you do it, and that. You know, back in the old days, I can kind of still remember that. 
And I remember that um, certainly in some of the first positions I had, there was a little bit of that in me. You know, I think you, you, you kind of become a product of your environment. And I remember as a school teacher, you know, uh, back when I was teaching in 1977, uh, 78, 79, you know, people were getting jacked. I mean, you know, you, you'd get, you'd get, I got it at school when I was at school in Pretoria Boys, liberally, you know, teachers, headmasters. I mean, and when I was at King Edwards, you know, as a phys ed teacher, I had a, you know, I had a whistle with a rope on it and I dealt it out just as, and I think about it now and I'm, absolutely horrified absolutely horrified and i have a lot of king edwards boys that are on facebook with me and you know if any of them ever had to hear this podcast i would say i am so sorry for doing the things that i did but you know you just don't know any better that's kind of how you were taught so you know i learned a lesson when i was at uh, at sun city and the lesson i learned was um there's a guy that was running it a guy called jerry inzarello uh, Jerry went on to work for Kersner at, uh, uh, at Paradise Island, then went on to work for him in uh, New York. Uh, he was with, uh, uh, he's now in Saudi Arabia, just one of the great um, hospitality leaders. And he was a participative manager. He had a participative management style. And he would always engage people and um, get their opinions, ask their advice. He understood that at the end of the day, he had to make the final decision and was never, never, ever shied away from making the final decision, as difficult as that might be. But he always asked everybody's opinion. He always tried to get as much consensus as possible. So a consensus builder who basically was asking people's advice, who was uh, asking for your participation, um, you know, I learned that from him. And so I, I, I say to people today, if they ask me the question, that's the style that I believe in. I, you know, I like to share. I like to communicate probably excessively. I like to get people's opinion. I like to get their buy-in. I like to get their thought process. Um, I've, many times I've changed my mind because of that. But I ultimately do understand that in a leadership position, you do have to make a decision. And, you know, one of the things that, can really cripple a leader is not making a decision. And in fact, by not making a decision, you actually are making a decision. So I understand that at the end of all of this, uh, you need to make a decision. But uh, I think what better way of making a decision than getting multiple smart people, that's provided you've surrounded yourself with smart people, getting multiple smart, smart people's opinion on how you should move forward. And not only taking the opinion, but imagine the buying you get when they're all asked and, and, and in fact, if in, in fact you use a lot of what they have to say. So mm. that's kind of where I would be on that. Yeah, Mike, it's very interesting that you mentioned the connection between being a consensus seeker and a decision maker. What we've found in, in our experience over the last 10 years is that, you know, if you if you have someone who is quite strong in consensus seeking nature, they often are not very strong on the decision making piece. So to to be able to sort of amalgamate those two into one personality is not very commonly found, and and obviously one of the reasons for for your success and in the way that you've gone about your your business. I would like to know just as we continue on the conversation around, uh, you know, unpacking what a, a great culture looks like. Do you have any specific elements that you? Uh, almost tick boxes that you look for in in when you are creating a, a really world-class culture within an organization whether that be leaders or a certain element of that um, behavior that that is very important to you so uh, you know this is uh, this is part of this presentation I'm going to do it at, uh, at 11 o'clock today and and I think um, you know it's one of the slides and again as you know when you present you probably have you have 30 or 40 slides, and there's probably three or four in there that are real gems, right? And the one that, for me, is is this slide, this question specifically. I think, um, and I'm just going to, I'm going to, I'm going to go take you through these. I've actually kind of jotted them down here, so I'm going to take you through them. But so these are things. I actually have 12 of them, so <laughs> it's probably more than we needed to know. But let, let me share that with you in any case, and 
And if there's any of them that jump out of you that we want to talk about, we can. But I think one um, shares information. Not only do you have to be a great communicator, um, but it's one thing being a great communicator, which is a given for being a great leader. But you have to be prepared to share that information and share it liberally. Now, there are certain things that are confidential and you can't share, obviously. But wherever you can share information, I think it garners trust and it certainly puts you in a position to, 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 to be more successful. The other one is the power of interacting with each individual. And I think more importantly, to show appreciation and recognition. So something is still the same thank you to somebody for doing something. And, you know, I would walk around Congressional and Ocean Reef and people would say I was the highest paid high five or black slapper in the industry because really when you break down what you do as a leader of a club like a club of those sizes is you really are interacting with your members and you're interacting with your staff and you know happy staff and happy members makes for a happy life for you so the other one we talked about earlier is empowering through delegation um you can't do everything you have to surround yourself with good smart people people that have traits and attributes that you don't have you know you can't have a whole bunch of mike Leamace clones walking around I mean, I have weaknesses and I try and shore those weaknesses up by people who have them as strengths. And if you can find those, and I think if you're smart enough to understand what your weaknesses are and you shore them up with people that have this, that as a strength, I think you you know, you know develop a team. So, I Mike, think- if I could just jump in there, something that I've noticed uh, quite prevalently in, in quite a few of the, the more junior leaders or, or managers within organizations is that they often feel a need to try and show their worth uh, in terms of how how much competency they have or how, how much ability they have and therefore often try and be the front runner with, without actually realizing that in order to be a good leader, you kind of need to, to take a back seat and create a platform for, for other people to shine. Um, at what point in your career did you kind of start to realize that it wasn't about you being the front runner and actually enabling others to, to be able to step up in terms of the environment that you created for them? So it's, you know, I hadn't reflected on this before, so I'm going to reflect on it. But as you were talking, I was, I was thinking about an incident and, and this happened in my second year at Congressional. So this would have been 2000 or 2001. I think I'd gone out of town on a conference or I was speaking somewhere, I was doing something, and I came back and the chairman or the president of the club at the time, really nice guy, uh, lawyer, um, we were having a meeting and he said, Mike, you know what? He said, the club runs better when you're not here than when you are here. And initially I took that as a, as a weakness, right? I was like, Damn, how how's that possible? And there was this kind of pregnant pause, and then he said to me, "But I'm paying you a compliment." And I said, "What do you mean?" He said, "Well, I'm paying you a compliment." He says, "You have trained these people so well; they care about you so much that in your absence, they go above and beyond that what is normally expected of them to make sure that everything is covered, so that." In your absence, nothing bad happens and that everything goes really smoothly. He says, that's probably the biggest compliment I could ever pay you. And as you were speaking about that, I was thinking, when did this all happen? You know, that that probably was a big turning point for me to realize that I don't physically have to be there every waking moment. If I, if I do the right things, train the right people, give them the right tools, delegate correctly, that they are going to be able to step up and do it. And what went from immediately from me, and I'll never forget the gentleman's name, Tim Sullivan, what went from a negative, and he was a kind of guy who was a very smart guy, a lawyer, who, who would always kind of um, challenge you and kind of push you. He was an edgy kind of person, but always in a good way. So it was early in our relationship, and I really didn't quite know how to take him, and therefore the hesitancy. But uh, he could see I was a little distraught and therefore the explanation. And, uh, you know, he and I reflected on that for years to come. I mean, we, we, we talked about that forever. And I've used that many times uh, in different presentations, just talking about that, because that's a really uh, real compliment. And I think it answers the question, you know, for me, that, that was a turning point. 
Anyway, let me run through these others cool. quickly. Um, the other one was adjust your style. Um, and that is, you know, the best leaders, you can't manage everybody the same way. You're probably familiar with the predictive index, right? And, and how that works. And again, that, you know, I've, I first, first heard about that in 1997 and have used it extensively throughout my career. And in, in not, not just in recruiting, which is something that I'm now doing, and we use it extensively in recruiting, but in my, in my position as a leader in these organizations, I always wanted to know what people's PIs were because I wanted to know how I need to do, adapt my behavior to best get the best out of them. As you know, a financial controller, as you can imagine, has a very different PI to me, right? I'm probably on the, on the one side of the scale and he or she's on the other side of the scale. But understanding that for both of us, understanding you know, when you come into my office to have a discussion about finance, this is the way you need to do it. And conversely, when I go into his office, this is how I need to do it, approach it. So again, I think adjusting your style. We talked about setting small milestones. You know, Rome wasn't built in a day, lacing up your shoes, going out for a run, you know, one mile or one kilometer the next day. You know, set these small goals and small milestones. I often ask groups when I'm speaking, how many of you set goals? And it, Rob, it amazes me still today, less than 10% of people actually set goals. And I don't mean about dreams or what you, I mean, if I talk about setting goals, writing them down on a piece of paper, monitoring them, what are the intermediate goals to get to that goal, you know, all of that. So mm. people just, you know, just don't do that. Yeah. You know, have fun. Life is short. Enjoy what you do. I, I try and do that all the time. I mean, you've got to have fine time to have fun. And the best leaders know how to do that. I was on a very serious call yesterday with uh, Seth War from the PGA of America, uh, and there were probably 18 to 20 other people on the call. And talking about really serious stuff, right? Obviously, COVID-19, there's a lot going on in our industry. It's the largest sports organization in the world. We're having this discussion. But he found time in this conversation, in this hour conversation, to make things a little bit light, to, you know, to, to allow us to at least understand that there's more to this and things will get better and, and, and generate a little bit of fun in the conversation. The next one is just the ability to work in a culture and to work with leaders that are there to remove obstacles. You know, I always thought of myself as uh, somebody who removed friction points. What are the friction points that you're dealing with in your life or in your career and your workplace? You know, is it a new computer? Is it training? Do you need to go to Cornell and understand better how to do this? What are the friction points? Is it a member? Is it a staff member? What is it and how can I help you solve those friction points? And in each of the leaders that we had at Congressional and Ocean Reef, each of them took on that same role. Because if you expect excellence and you expect perfection, you can't get there if there's a lot of friction points, if there's a lot of dissatisfaction. And it can be as simple as an old outdated cell phone. You know, and that can be fixed, right? I mean, how do you do that? So unless you're asking those probing questions, unless you let people know that you're there to solve those friction points, you know, they're not going to come to you with it. And you want them to come to you with you so you can resolve, right? Mm -hmm. The other one is giving feedback both ways. And again, that goes to communication. Uh, one that I share with my kids all the time is, and uh, I just heard a, I was watching a uh, virtual assembly today from the headmaster Pretoria boys and he was he was asked the question the difference between co-educational schooling and uh, single single sex schooling and he was saying the challenge in co-educational uh, co-education is the fact that the, the the girls are more advanced than the boys and if you wanted something done in that 13 14 15 year old age group you always ask the girl to do it and my point to telling you that is that I tell my kids, and I, and I use this in my, in, my, in my presentations, ask to do more. Always ask, raise your hand, you know, stay late, get in early. You know, somebody says, well, I need somebody to do this. Be the first person to stick up your hand. Whether you can do it or not, you can learn how to do it. You can ask somebody how to do it. But when people see that people are willing to do it, you become the person that becomes the go-to person. If you become the go-to person, then everything seems to fall in its place, you know? Mm. So I believe that I've always tried to do that. And I think that works, uh, works mm. well. 
The other one is focus your time, the old 80-20 rule. You know, 20% of what you do is going to produce 80% of your stuff. So really focusing on that. And then the difference between the golden rule, which uh, people talk about a lot, and that is to treat others the way you want to be treated, which is great. But then I was sitting at a, at a, at a presentation a couple of years ago, and an industry leader here called Jay DiPietro ran a club called Boca West in Boca Raton, Florida. Great friend. He's now retired. He's probably, Jay's probably 80. Um, and he and I do some work together. He was doing this presentation and he said, you know, the golden rule is just not good enough. He says the golden rule is outdated. It's antiquated. It's the new rule is the platinum rule. And you may have heard of this, but you want to treat others the way they want to be treated. Not the mm. way you want to be treated, but the way they want to be treated. And it'll come later on in one of your questions, I think, and that is, you know, the specialization, this personalization that that the service industry is, is in at the moment is how do you personalize every experience for every person that you're dealing with? Um, so, you know, it's kind of a little long-winded there, Rob, but um, I appreciate you kind of working through that with me, but that's kind of answering that. Yeah, Mike, it's, it's interesting how important um, emotional intelligence has become in this whole process. Um, the difference between how you would want to be treated and and how the person in question would actually be wanting to be treated is is such a, a huge difference uh, potentially in perspective. So yeah, such great points there, and thank you for sharing all of them. I just want to briefly shift across to obviously where we find ourselves at the moment in very uncertain times, and and there's a lot being said about you know there being a new normal as such, and specifically looking at the hospitality space. What, in your mind, do you believe is going to be the key boxes that need to be ticked in order for hospitality environments to be relevant, you know, going into this new normal? You know, I think the, um, there is going to be a new normal. And I was having that conversation this morning with uh, one of the guys from the PGA. You know, in the search, executive search stuff that we do, uh, we're doing a search right now for a general manager at a club in Seattle. Now, Seattle couldn't be further from where I am, right? So I'm sitting on the east coast of Florida, and Seattle is on the, you know, the far northern extremity of the west coast. So in the old times, we would have all jumped on a plane. You know, three of us would have jumped on the plane from Florida. We would have flown up to Seattle. We would have driven out to the club. We would have had the meetings. And we probably would have gone back there at least two other times to get this done. Um, and in that, we would have... Each time you do that, it's probably two and a half days out of your out of your out of your time, right? When you think about the travel alone, getting there, it's probably five to six hours. Time difference, getting back, it's a whole day to get back. You're in and out of airports, and so I think you know. I think people are going to be just rethinking how they do that, how how business is conducted. We now know. And I've learned more about Zoom and conference calling and everything in the last month than I, than I could ever have known. But you can have very successful meetings doing this. So I think the, the companies that are going to be able to adapt to this, I, I think the hospitality companies are the ones that are going to be challenged. You know, airlines are going to be challenged. You know, cruises. I, I'm a huge cruiser. I love cruising. You know, I had to cancel two cruises. I've got one booked for August going out of out of Italy. Well, I'm not going to do that. And I'm not sure at what stage I've become comfortable going on a cruise line. And even though I'm inundated with letters from, you know, I'm executive platinum on American Airlines and, you know, the same with the cruise lines, I'm inundated with letters telling me, you know, when they, when we get back, this is what we're going to do. I just don't know that that's going to come back, Rob. I really don't. I think when it does come back and it will come back, I think it's going to have to be Again, it's going to have to be um, not one size fits all. It's going to have to be personalized. Um, you're going to have to find ways of enticing people to do the things in the past that you could have got with one size fits all. You're going to, you know, cruise, for example. A cruise would be just the fact that you were going to the Caribbean might have been good enough, right? Now it's not going to be good enough. You're going to have to come up with you know, guest speakers, guest lecturers, somebody who's innovative, somebody who's going to, there's going to have to be some meaning that you take away from that cruise other than just laying in the sun and going to the Caribbean. So there's got to be something tangible that you take away from that. 
Uh, and I think that's, you know, that's going to be the case uh, in, in, in the hospitality. It's going to be, you know, I stayed in a hotel in LA a couple of weeks ago for a business meeting and I stayed in a, uh, a Marriott, uh, one of the new Marriott brands, and I forget the name now. But this hotel was designed for business travelers. There was no fluff, but everything that was there was on point for a business traveler. It had everything I needed. It was minimalistic in nature, which means cleanliness. You know, all of the stuff that we think about before was all, it, it, it's easy to do. So I think that's kind of where these where it's going with the brand's personalization and really kind of understanding the apprehension that's in the marketplace and, and how you overcome that apprehension through kind of speaking to people individually or personally. Yeah, it seems that really acute listening is going to be absolutely key to understanding that new that new normal and that new dynamic uh, for these brands going forward. Mike? As we, we move towards the end of the, the interview, I wanted to also ask you um, a bit more about the relationships that you have fostered over your career. Um, you've, you've been known to, to be a fantastic networker and build a really uh, awesome group of, of, of connections across the globe. Can you speak to us about a general approach that you've had to that and, and what's worked for you in that sense? So I would say communicate, communicate, communicate. Uh, Jack Welsh's comment, when you think you've communicated enough, communicate more. I don't care when last somebody called me. I don't, that is, I don't play those games. If I want to connect with somebody, I pick up the phone and connect. I think, you know, I call myself the Facebook king of, you know, clubs because I, I, I'm on Facebook all the time. People say, how do you find time? How do you, how do you find time to do that? Isn't that a waste of time? Well, the answer is no, because just go to my Facebook and have a look, Facebook page and have a look. Most of the stuff I paste is not about me or post is not about me. It's not about pictures of me eating or things. It's about articles. It's about information. It's about sharing. The amount of people that I connect with that come back and tell me what a great article, you know, I really love reading that, really love hearing about that. I use that as a motivational tool and as a sharing tool. Um, I'm constantly, you know, my family drive me crazy because they think I spend way too much time on the phone. But, you know, for me, it's about texting. This morning, I probably texted 12 people. When I go out for my walk run, I'm, that's when I'm communicating with people in South Africa, in Dubai, in the UK, in Australia, in New Zealand. That's, you know, you've got to make time. You have to set time aside. And it's, you know, sometimes you, you just don't know what other people are going through. And I like to think that I'm touching bases with people on a fairly regular basis, whether it's in Facebook, the way you and I connect through Facebook, or whether it's me picking up and sending a text, whether it's WhatsApp. But it, you have to work at it, Rob, right? So people say, you have a great network, you've got a lot of different people. Well, yeah, that's because you work at it. It's, it's a job. I mean, it is something that you have to cultivate. You know, people say, well, you know a lot of people. Well, how does that happen? It happens because... I don't reject any new person that comes into my life and I get a business card, they get an email from me. They get a phone call from me. They get a text message from me. And sometimes if there's a lack of response on their side, well, great. I mean, at least I've reached out. So I would say it all comes down to communicating and just basically being prepared uh, to spend the time and the energy and the effort. I'm, 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 I use LinkedIn, not a great LinkedIn user, but I use it. I've used it more now that I have my own business. Uh, Facebook is a huge tool for me. Um, I just started, I don't do Twitter, but I just started doing some Instagram stuff as well. I don't do a lot actively on it, but I follow a lot of people on it. But mm. again, I think it's just really in today's day and age, there's no excuse not for not communicating. It seems that uh, along with your, your strong work ethic comes a, a pretty decent communication ethic as well. And it's, it's again, pretty easy to see why you've uh, created a, a network which is probably a lot more comprehensive than many others in the sense that it's it's just about that repetitive nature which is which is the discipline element which not a lot of people to be honest have these days so really really well done on that we've got a question for you which uh, which is a little bit more off the uh, off the cuff and um you know, we always are keen to hear the difference between our guests and, and what the answer is. But if you had one restaurant to visit for the rest of your life, Mike, which uh, which restaurant would that be and why? So this wasn't difficult to answer. Um, 
Not at all. So there is a restaurant up the road from me, and it just we we kind of fell into it. It's called Culinary Cafe, and it's not spelled the traditional culinary way. It's spelled culinary, C-O-O-L, Culinary okay. Cafe. And the 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 reason it's my favorite restaurant is, it's um, I went in there. It's a very small restaurant, probably seats uh, maybe thirty people at most. Uh, at least eight of those seats are at the bar overlooking the kitchen, the, the prep area. And believe it or not, they serve a cassoulet. Now, you're probably familiar with a cassoulet, the French, you know, the French stew done in numerous different ways in France. But I walked in there and I saw this as an appetizer in a crock pot. And I said, you know, I don't care the fact that I've never seen a cassoulet on any restaurant I've been to in the United States, nor have I ever served at any of the restaurants that I've ever managed in any of the clubs. And I just thought that was really neat. And then on top of it, the food was outstanding. They do fried chicken and waffles with a habanero syrup that is to absolutely die for. Now, not healthy, but again, you know, I'm not eating there every day, but when I do go there, it is... Uh, they do great. They have a great wine list. Everything is done locally. Mm. It just is my favorite. We probably, it's closed now, obviously, but Dale and I would go there at least once a week, at least. That's pretty easy so. to see why that's one of your, your very favorites there, Mike. Um, as we look towards the future and for guys looking in to get into this this industry and uh, and make, make serious impact as you have, what are some of the key things you'd say to to a guy like that and, and what can they really focus on to to make that kind of impact? So, Rob, two quick things. One, I think you um, you need to sit down. I think they, anybody doing this needs to sit down and take stock of where they are. And I think by taking stock, I think it really is to highlight the successes you have had in your life. And when I write down the successes I've had in my life, being a husband, being a father – you know, uh, being, you know, an immigrant here in, in the United States, you know, getting my PGA certification, getting my club manager. So you, you make a list of these things and you put them down. And you'll be surprised at how much success you've already had in your life. And it's you need to build on a foundation of strength. And one always looks at what I don't have rather than looking at what I do have. And when you put down all the things in your life that you're doing well, and yes, you might not be where you want to be, but... There's a lot of things that you're doing right. So I think one, taking stock of where you are. The second thing is honestly to go back to the arrows in your quiver. And that is really visualize, you know, in any interview or in any job or any thing where you're presenting yourself, um, imagine a physical quiver on your back. And imagine in that physical quiver are arrows. And each arrow you pull out to present to whoever it is, is telling them something about who you are and why you are the right person to, to go to the next level, whether it's as an independent businessman, myself pitching somebody, or whether you're trying to get a job, trying to you know get to the next level in a position. And those arrows are different for everybody. You know what I told you? One of my arrows is doing the Ironman, is running Comrades. Those are an arrow. My certifications on arrow, you know. And I think at the end of the day, with all things being equal, you know, if you have more arrows, if you have more stories to tell, it allows you to have a better chance of achieving what your what your desire is of achieving, whether it's getting that piece of business or whether it's getting that position. And it's diversified. You know, I've seen people put in there, you know, that they have a, de a, de a degree in English imperial history. Well, that tells me that that person is a, probably a fascinating person to talk to, right? Mm. But one of the people I, sh I talked about, he said that's one of his arrows, and he really believes that that's a real, and he can go on talking about it for, you know, forever. So I think really that's it, is take stock of where you are, take stock of the successes you have in your life, and everybody has successes, uh, and then really figure out what arrows do you have in your quiver, what arrows would you like to put in there, and what arrows do you need to have in there? You know, running a comrades marathon is a nice to have. It's not a, you absolutely need it. But I think it adds to the quiver. It's one of those arrows that I think you pull out at a different stage. And I think it gets you a different result and it says something different. It's not going to appeal to everybody, 
but it's certainly a nice arrow to have in your quiver. So, yeah, I think yeah. that would be it. Some terrific advice there, Mike. Thank you very much. And lastly, what's what's the next big thing for, for Mike Lemes? What's the next big chapter for you? So, Rob, I think the next big thing, you know, for me is um, I'm kind of focused on this executive search. And the reason for that is kind of helping others. You know, having been in this game for a long time now and uh, having had the privilege of, you know, uh, running two of the top clubs in the country, platinum clubs in the country, one and two. Um, working with the PGA of America, we, we set up an search division called Execusearch. And in there, the idea is really to, to help aspiring uh, club professionals, general managers, others in the industry who want to get to the pinnacle of the career is to help them get there. And it's not just helping them find the right job. It's also mentoring and teaching and coaching and everything else and presenting and traveling around and, and, and kind of doing this with them. So that's really my focus right now is I've got other clients that I do other stuff with. Uh, I'm doing some work for uh, a Riviera Club in Los Angeles, helping them with some stuff. I've got a project in the Bahamas uh, that's uh, from scratch development. It's a, it's a real estate marina play, now golf, so I'm, I'm working on that. Um, so... But this one is the one that really kind of speaks to helping people uh, improve their lives. And so that's really kind of the next step, uh, next big focus for me. Um, we spend a lot of time on this. We have a lot of our meetings on this. So, uh, you know, trying to help there, I think, is, is probably the next focus mm. for me. Well, Mike, we can only wish you everything of the best in, in this fantastic new chapter and uh, have absolutely no doubt it'll be another resounding success. And lastly, just to acknowledge you and, and everything you've done in the industry, um, as someone who's followed you for a couple of years now, it's it, it really is uh, remarkable to see the impact that you've had uh, on, on so many of us back at home. And and thanks for, for kind of keeping and flying that flag so incredibly high um, across across the pond. Uh, it's, it's really inspiring and it's incredibly motivating to see what, what can be done uh, from, from someone like yourself. Well, I appreciate it, Rob, and thank you for reaching out and thank you for uh, taking the time. And uh, I really enjoyed our chat and appreciate it. And again, if there's anything I can do uh, for anybody back in South Africa, and a lot do reach out, but if anything I can do, just you know, reach out. I'm happy to, uh, to try and help. That's it for today, guys. If this episode brought you value, please do subscribe to the podcast series. And for more information on building your organizational culture, visit us at rcaconsulting.biz. We'll see you in the next episode.